Welcome to another episode of the Compassionate Marketing Podcast. Today, I am so grateful to be sitting down with someone who is brilliant, beautiful, kind, and has such a view on social impact and working with joy from anywhere, anytime that I think you're going to get so much benefit from this conversation. There's just so many amazing golden nuggets that are coming your way. So strap yourself in for an amazing interview. Hi, my name is Justine Beauregard, and I've been a marketer and sales trainer since 2008. I'm also the founder of Compassionate Marketing, and I'm committed to delivering you fresh perspectives about branding, marketing, and selling that will change how you do business for the better. Each week, you'll be given tips, strategies, insights, and interviews that leave you feeling clear on your next steps and your simplest path to success as an entrepreneur. Let's dive right into this week's episode. You're listening to the Compassionate Marketing Podcast. I would like to welcome Dr. Artika Tyner. She is the founder of Planting People Growing Justice. It's a publishing house. It's a bookstore. It's all the things. Please, you do a much better job of explaining what you do than I ever could. So please let us know what you do and all the amazing things about you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the introduction. Honored to be here with you today. To be able to have that spark of inspiration, because that's why we started our businesses. That's why we do the work that we do, to be able to inspire and have an impact. So for us, our bookstore and our publishing house was created to respond to some of the issues that I'm working on directly. By training, I'm a civil rights attorney. And for far too many of my clients, they learn how to read while in prison. And we wanted to turn the tide, literally, to make sure that we were creating instead of pipelines into the tangled web of mass incarceration, how could we create pipelines to success, and especially for children? And what was a practical way to do that? Not just by data, but by my own personal experience? Increased literacy, because there's a correlation between illiteracy and future incarceration. So my mantra, even as an educator, I'm also a professor, is we see a problem, we create a solution. So we started creating solutions through the pages of books, making books more accessible, but also increasing representation. We wanted all children to be able to see a reflection of themselves in the cover of books. So we got started making books fun, making them accessible, and making them very engaging because we knew that if we could increase literacy in a meaningful way, we could help to create those building blocks for future educational success. I love that. What is your ultimate, when you say we're looking to inspire and create a, an impact and all of that, like, let me hear your mission. Let's hear your mission and like what that impact really looks like in a more tangible way. Yes, that mission is right in our name. That idea of how do we plant seeds of social change. As an attorney, for me, it automatically turns to Brown versus Board of Education because the turning point in that case was about representation. It was about diversity. It was about equity. It was about inclusion. Because oftentimes we don't talk about it. We talk about the attorney who argued the case, who later became our chief, our, our, our justice, Justice Thurgood Marshall, that served on the U.S. Supreme Court. But we don't talk about there was an important powerhouse couple that helped to support that case. And that was the Clark family. So that was Dr. Mabie Clark and her husband, Kenneth Clark. No one practically knows their name. But what substantiated the case of Brown versus Board of Education and of course, it was about ending segregation in public spaces and schools in particular, but it was their doll test. Going to schools throughout the South to be able to demonstrate that the color of your doll and the experience that you have with your doll is not just about playtime experience. It's about representation. It's about a message related to self-worth and self-determination and resiliency. So for instance, they would bring, they did what is now called the doll test, a black doll and a white doll. And they'd ask questions like, which doll is the nice doll, the white doll? 
which DAO is a smart DAO, the white DAO. But yet you're talking to Black children. So what message subconsciously are they getting when they're mm. not seeing representation, when they're not being engaged, that their self-worth is wrapped into not having any value, not being intelligent, not being beautiful, not being important. Those are all things that are just about the human condition. That's why we also expanded our work from just working on books and representation. We also work with dolls and other toys to make sure that we're bringing forth that representation as well. And folks go, is that just about black kids? No, it's about all children, but it is uniquely situated against some of the challenges that African-American children are facing. So it's ensuring that when you see a children's book, you're more likely to see a children's book on the cover with a black dog or a black bear than a black boy or a black girl. Something's wrong with that. And overall, only 10% of books, roughly, have an author of color or a main character of color. It's our opportunity to create those mirrors going all the way back to Brown versus Board of Education, that positive representation on the pages of books, positive representation in the toys and media all around us. This is the beauty of America. But for all children, because people go, well, are you just talking to Black people? No, I'm talking to everyone. For all children to be able to have what Dr. Rudy and Sims Bishop talks about, uh, those mirrors, but also windows, those windows to be able to, those sliding glass doors, to look into the experience of others to have the rich type of multicultural experience where we can all honor each other, celebrate our differences, and let's be able to really create a rich tapestry, a multiculturalism. That's the beauty of education. That's the beauty of America. And that's the beauty of humanity. I totally agree. I, I love the quote. There's some quote that I read somewhere that says, privilege is invisible. Like we can't, it's the things that we don't notice that come easy to us. And I see a book behind you that says the inclusive leader. When you think of leadership and what inclusive leadership really like embodied feels like, how do you define that? Well, actually the, the inclusive leader is, is my book. And uh, the the full title is The Inclusive Leader, Taking Intentional Action for Justice and Equity. It's about everything that you're talking about. It's about understanding your own leadership story, which is your beliefs, which is your customs. These are your own heritage pieces. But in addition to that, acknowledging where those biases may be, where are those blind spots, and being able to engage in those type of cross-cultural, those learning experiences to broaden your horizons in real ways. But in addition to that, it's not like we're just going out having a social experiment. Like I met a person from this group, this group, that group. No, the equity mindset also requires us to then think, and I know we talk about it in a general sense, uh, the golden rule, but being our brother and sister's keeper. So that means we have to look at systems strategically and find out where those inequities are to bring forth the justice in meaningful ways. So as a leader, it's being conscious about, let's just give one example. We just say the data over and over again, that women will not receive pay parity. So inclusion related to pay and be able to bridge some of the gaps. And this is pre-COVID when we looked at this data by the year 2059. I don't have until 2059 to wait. I don't know if you do. <laughs> I need to have pay parity today. So yeah. as an inclusive leader, what do I do once I see that data? I go to HR and I say, equal pay for equal work. Let's go through our records. Let's make sure it's happening. When I see the fact that typically you don't see retention of women in higher levels of leadership, whether it's where I'm initially from in higher education or in traditional, you know, corporate settings, nonprofit world, you name it, fill in the blank. That's me as inclusive leader. And especially when I have the sense of agency or power to make a change, I have to ask myself, who am I mentoring? Who am I championing? Who am I coaching 
to be able to have a living succession plan where I'm training and unveiling talent in real time to make equity and justice come alive. So for me, inclusive leadership is action-oriented. We've mm. all seen the data. We've all at this point gone to a bias train. We've all talked about diversity in meaningful ways, but now it's time to take that information and knowledge and couple it with action and strategy to make sure that we're not just sitting here celebrating problems. Why is it still yet today? We go through the data. Lean In gives us the data all the time that it would take an African-American female to get equal pay from 2021 to her white male counterparts. She'd have to work all the way until about July or August of 2022. For a Latina, all the way into November. If we know these things, why don't we take the time to solve it? An inclusive leader sees a problem and creates a solution. I love that definition of inclusive leadership. There's so much I want to unpack in what you just said. <laughs> so many amazing things in that. The first one, I think, so the other day, I'm walking down the street and there's a piece of trash on the sidewalk and my son looks at it and he kind of looks back at me and I think to myself, I have two options right now. I could either tell him to pick it up or I could pick it up. The first one is a model of accountability. If I'm telling someone, hey, pick that up, that means that they're needing some sort of prompt to go make a good decision in my mind, right? Like what I'm defining as that good decision. Where personal responsibility is I don't desire to see trash on the street. And therefore, every time I see it, I don't care if someone else picks it up because I know I will, because that's my personal accountability to something. And this is where I think there's a lot of gray area because like you said, everyone knows the data. We hear the reports. We read, we listen to the news where we're surrounded by information that supports every single thing you're saying. Yet I feel a lot of people are still in the accountability realm where they're needing someone to hold their hand, to walk them through. Here is how you become an inclusive leader. Here is a reminder of something you can do instead of them taking it on as their mission or part of their mission to create social justice and change. And I think as entrepreneurs, this is such an important conversation to have because the equal pay disparity is underneath our control to some extent within our own business model. So we can decide to hire at whatever pay scale we desire. We can decide to create opportunities and jobs for people that are an equivalent pay scale in our mind. We can define what those parameters look like. So I'm curious if someone you feel is in that accountability phase and you could say something to spark them into personal responsibility, taking that to the next level, having the desire to really make that leap and plant those seeds like your whole brand is about, what would you say to someone that might move them from accountability to personal responsibility? one of the ongoing missteps on this conversation, especially as it relates to inclusion, is that it's a, a moral imperative alone. Why do my businesses work? Because not only by skill set do I have diversity, not only by ethnicity or race do I have diversity or gender, you fill in the blank. The diversity is our superpower of our organization because it gives me perspective on different audiences that we want to reach. What kind of products and services do they need? What would be helpful at this point? It gives me a sense of, for me, I mean, I use technology in full disclosure. I just use my computer like a word processor. My team had to teach me about Zoom. My team had to teach me, they're like, hey, doc, other people want to hear your message, so you need to 
quit lecturing for three hours and why don't you make it 10 minutes and even one minute and even how about this say it in about 100 characters for twitter i was like absolutely not that's not who i am but lo and behold my team helped to inspire and train me on how to expand and reach a broader audience with our message and it's not going to be the way that i thought of it because my message on bringing up this piece on what we can do around inclusive leadership, how we can diversify and make books come alive for all children. It's a wonderful thing, but if it doesn't get past my office here, what difference did it make? So I think a piece of it is in this specific arena around inclusion, making inclusive leadership come alive, it requires us, it's not an option, to be able to talk about it as a business imperative. And all the data points, whether it's related to great places to work or I task a project, they all show this essence of how diversity makes us brighter, which in turn really is talking about how do we bring all our gifts and talents together in real time, incentivize and cultivate the type of environment for innovation, and as a business imperative, reap the benefits because of it. Because if we're just going to say we're going to do this because, hey, you know, I like Dr. Tyner and she's nice. And then bonus, she's a woman and she's a person of color. So I'm going to help her out. That's interesting, but it's not sustainable. And if we do it, if we say, oh, that's just because, you know, maybe she faced some barriers, all the data she just gave us. So let's help her out. No, I want you to be able to look at me and say, I see the talent. I see the added value. I'm going to pay her accordingly because she's going to bring that value into my organization, expand my work, whether it's related to my coaching or consulting services or a bookstore, fill in the blank, any of our business endeavors. To be able to see that from a business imperative, unfortunately, for most organizations and individuals, looks radically different than seeing it as a moral imperative. And the business imperative goes beyond just seeing me as an individual of seeing how we can create and innovate together. Now, my hope would be that you'd have both, but unfortunately, I've been at this work and helping to increase diversity and equity and inclusion my whole entire career. So almost 25 years pushing this message. And every time I did it on a moral imperative, it depends on my audience. But if I'm talking about a business imperative to really make the economy work for those entrepreneurs that you and I are part of the community, to make it work for corporate America, to make it work for America as a whole, it's about everyone, this human capital. And this is what I talk about in the book. We have to tap and lean into it. And we cannot afford to be dismissive or make anyone not a part of the solution. That's radically different on how we operate right now. Yeah, I love that. Another thing that you said was about the golden rule and treating people the way that they wanted to be treated and, and how that sort of impacts so many aspects of your business, not just how you operate, but also the profitability of your company. Because when people feel seen and heard, it, you know, it feels good. And when you're operating at your highest moral standard, whatever that may be, it's going to vary drastically from person to person, but you can feel good about what you put out there. A concept that I've read about and that I absolutely love, and I, I actually teach this to my kids, is something called the platinum rule. Have you heard about this? I have in passing, but tell me more. Let's hear. So the platinum rule is basically you treat people the way they want to be treated. So instead of assuming based on how you want to be treated, that that's how someone else would, you get curious, you ask them questions, what would make you feel good? What would make you feel inspired? What do you like to do? What do you like to listen to? And when I talk to my kids about forming friendships with other children, I'll say to them, you know, 
what is this person like? What do they do? Do you, you know, and they get more curious and they ask more questions and they treat people in a way that's almost like a next level goodness of friendship because they're really creating a deeper connection to that person. And instead of making assumptions, they're also broadening their perspective because they're allowing other people's perspectives to influence their behavior. And it's very powerful to see that layered interaction. So I'm so curious if the people that you're writing these books for, if these children are being raised and reading books and seeing people of color in the books as the superheroes of the story and the stars of the show and all of these things, and they're experiencing life from that platinum rule and really being heard and being seen, what do you think the change generationally, because your work, social change has a generational impact. Like it's beyond what we're going to exist and witness. What do you think that's going to be if we were to flip the script and say, instead of by 2059, we want equal pay, by 2059, this is the generational impact of this work. What do you envision that to be? That's an excellent question. Also, thank you for introducing the platinum rule. That was, yeah. a, that was very helpful for me because it's a reminder. Really, that's the language that I use when I'm talking about equity. Because, for that. instance, yours truly, everyone is always, you know, trying to figure out each other's love language to understand each other be better, right? So yeah. the average person is like, my love language, bring me a million dollars and I'm happy. Because <laughs> it's something tangible. But anyone that knows me well knows my love language is related to service. You, you want to get my attention right away? Oh, tell me you're going to give 10 hours in and volunteerism and being involved in the community in a tangible way. Tell me you're hosting a book drive. Tell me many of my friends are medical doctors. Tell me that you're helping to create, you know, a new health awareness center. Doing something is what moves me. But if you think that based upon your platinum rule, that the best gift for me is a tangible good, then we're going to not have a clear understanding of what motivates and inspires me or that love language. So what you describe for me and what you're teaching your children is really about equity. And equity is materialized through relationship because you're talking about that empathetic listening. You would have to listen to get an understanding of what my love language is. Your children would have to listen to their friends and their classmates to understand what inspires them. What do they like to do? If one person likes to play tennis all the time, you didn't ask anybody else. Maybe I like hockey. So how do you build those relationships? So what I would want to see in 2059 is a sense of instead of, and this is something that I practice myself, instead of so many statements, because we always want to be so matter of fact about everything, about our belief system, how we feel, you know, ending every statement with a period. I want us to do two things. And this is the English major in me. So bear with me just for a moment. <laughs> I want us to drop some of the periods and start using questions and commas. The questions should be, how can we change, whether it's climate change, whether it's environmental justice, healthcare, what can we do? Those type of questions. But I also love this piece from Ambassador Andrew Young that he talked about as many people, you know, as we're drawing close to MLK Day, many people are like, oh, Dr. King died and it was his dream that maybe motivates me or his dream died with them, some believe. No matter which way you go. He talked about how Dr. King understood the power of commas, that Dr. King had a dream. He was a drum major for justice, comma, and then he brought someone else with him. So Ambassador Andrew Young, still living today, still doing remarkable work around economic justice, around social change. And then he's training other people like Chairman John Holt Bryant, comma, comma, comma. Why? Because then we all can fit in the pathway to be able to be an instrument of change. That's an invitation to everyone because it's easy to say someone else is going to do the work. 
it's easy to say the work's already been done. Those are all periods. And it's easy not to engage to ask the complex questions that require a question mark on how we can manifest change. Are you loving this content? If you are, I can guarantee you're going to love the Compassionate Marketing Collective. In it, you'll get a library of marketing resources, live weekly calls, 24-7 access to feedback and guidance, peer-to-peer accountability and support, and members-only events and trainings. You're going to love it in there. Visit growthmindsetmarketers.com today for details or click the link in the show notes. I'll see you inside. So the purpose of my books and exactly what I do, for instance, one of my most recent books is called Stand Up and Be Counted. It won a writing competition through a peace and equality initiative from Room to Read. And everyone said, you know, we didn't necessarily understand how your concept would work under this initiative because you wanted to write a book on the U.S. Census. And I only can imagine the judges were probably like, really? The U.S. Census? Why in the world? You know, because everybody else is talking about you know, climate change, they're talking about being kind to each other, they're talking about diversity and ability and understanding and all these things that we can create together that are all components of peace and equality. But for me, peace and equality does not work. And it's a misconception if you don't infuse justice and equity. So of course I wrote about the census because I wanted to ensure 10 years out, so this isn't even getting 2059, this is taking us 2030, that in the communities where folks are undercounted and underrepresented, that the children today would have an understanding of what the census is. Not a myth, not a misunderstanding, but how the census is critically important. So through the book, I take a young girl named Nia on a journey, and she learns things like, oh, we can get better roads if we participate in the census and we're counting, because this is where some of the federal funding is coming from. How about better schools if we want a new science lab in the school? Wow, the census is important. How about for healthcare, new hospitals? How about uh, aid coming from the federal government? We know all those things are connected to the census. So I could have waited and said, oh, it's a shame we're undercounted in certain communities, including my own. Or I could reach back, look back to be able to look forward. So my dream for 2059 are those question marks and commas. So I had asked myself, what can I do differently about the census? It wasn't working for me. I kept trying to reach the adults and everybody had excuse or misconception. I started reaching the kids and they're like, that makes sense. I thought it did for the adults too, but for the kids, it started making sense because they understood all of a sudden what the census was, what was the significance and what they could do about it. So by 2059, I'm going to be able to ask enough questions to be able to inspire enough people to continue this journey of leadership by those commas as a continuation that we are planting those seeds of social change and reaping the harvest of justice in real time. Compassion is really, it comes from your experiences, right? And you modeling these types of things for people to see in real time. Cause you're saying, ask the questions, insert the commas, and you're doing that so beautifully. You're making sure that everything you're, you're doing, when you make a statement, it's the highest impact thing you can do. That's what I'm hearing. And everything that you say feels very intentional, which I love. And it holds compassion for all the different types of people who exist in the world. And the longer we move through time, the more branches of humankind there become because there's so much diversity being added every day and so many experiences. And with more connection, we're actually becoming more diverse because we have access to more information that's informing our choices and decisions and perspectives. And each one of those nuanced components of our lives needs to be seen and heard and appreciated. And it's so interesting 
you working in a remote environment and taking charge of social justice and writing for children and promoting inclusive leadership and recognition of the census and its role and, you know, future and development and even the current state of today, like what we're creating right now, how do you manage being a inclusive, compassionate leader from a distance? Do you feel like it makes a difference? And is there anything that anyone who's listening, who's managing teams can maybe adopt from your values or your behaviors to be better at that themselves of course it's just been an invitation of being a worldwide learner a global citizen so for me i started off from a young girl in a chinese immersion program and learning new languages learning new cultural perspectives and then taking that as an adult i always believed from the beginning that i was a citizen of the world so that meant i had to be a part of the world in tangible ways so like for instance one of the places that I love and I consider really my spiritual home is Ghana. When I go to Ghana, I go to explore and learn. Dr. Tyner is secondary to being a part of the community and learning and growing each and every day. So when I think about a team as well, for me, the greatest compliment, when no one knows that I'm the founder and CEO, that really my team shines through. They shine through through their gifts and talents and their contributions that way we're a circle. We're not a pyramid, you know, with a pyramid vision of leadership, it means that, okay, leadership is about a position or a title or, you know, those exercise of power. But really my mission has always been to redefine leadership. Every member of my team is a leader in, in our organization. Why? Because they have a unique perspective and vantage point that I do not have. They have a unique set of experiences and collectively we're stronger than we are apart. So that circle is that idea of that circle being unbroken. So in that way, what I love about my work, and maybe I'll draw upon Nelson Mandela for this one, he talks about the sense of leadership really happens from behind. Oftentimes we think leadership happens from the front, but from behind, I'm inspiring, uplifting. And also, let's just be honest, I can't ignore one thing, my own mortality. So if I'm not careful in building relationships and fostering leadership with others, a dream and a vision that dies with me, it's a period. Dr. Tyner created Planting People Growing Justice, and we bury it. The reality of it is, anything that's meaningful and tangible, especially in the arena of social change and social justice, has to have longevity. So for me, a piece of this is inspiring the leaders that will keep this going long after I'm gone. This is movement building. Yes, it's through a business model or through a business enterprise, but really, this is about changing hearts and minds on how we can help foster literacy, learning, and leadership development. But what does that translate into? In many ways, if we fail to tap into the talent in real time, into that human capital, cultivate it, we've lost opportunity. You don't think there's a cure to many of the diseases that we're looking for? The next Einstein somewhere? The next, I was just doing um, some research about uh, Kofi Annan, a, a powerful diplomat who moved with compassion and empathy and all the work that he did around the world. So how are we then inspiring that next generation to bring all that human capital so we can rise, bringing all that talent, bringing all that intellect, bringing all that wisdom and innovation. So I give the innovation that invitation. And the only way that I know how to do it best is to recognize that that could be anywhere in the world. And when I find it, trust me that you're a member of my team. <laughs> yeah. You're a member of my team because we all, we're, we're a whole. So we don't compete against each other. We complete each other. And our mission, and oftentimes people say, well, what about, you know, your competitors? Look, I'm not competing with any organization. And people think that's very odd when I make that statement. 
my competition is against ourselves to be more impactful in the work that we're doing. And if I can, it's not to say I don't have benchmarks, please don't get me wrong, but my competition, if we're talking about fighting the giant of social inequity, if we're talking about fighting the giants of poverty and racism, sexism, everything that I've talked about so far, that's not, it's not anything that our organization is going to do in isolation anyway. So in many pieces of our work, we're stronger because of our power of collaboration, both internally and externally. Yeah. Now I'm so curious to dig into the actual sort of components of what that leadership and the circle looks like, because I think certain people in the way that we've been maybe brainwashed, but that might be too strong of a word, is that there is somebody at the top of the pyramid who is leading, like who has sort of a vantage point and they're able to see and execute and move things. And I understand like when you were talking about leadership as a circle, I'm almost picturing you as the nucleus, like you're at the core of the circle and you're able to move in any direction with the circle and you're able to bring people into the core and then push them back out. And, and so you're fueling that whole organization. And I understand conceptually, but let's say you're leading a meeting with your team. If everyone's a leader, how does anyone have the opportunity to highlight their voice? Like, how do you manage that structure? I know that there are possibilities to do this, but I'm just curious to hear what your sort of way of executing that looks like. I think a myriad of different ways, but I'll give you two examples. The first one could be, let's say you have to cover a lot of ground, a lot of voices, or just something that you want a lot of perspective on. Why is it then that we can't use, I've been trained to restorative justice, we can use a talking circle. Maybe we're using a talking piece. That way we make sure that everybody, you know, that sense of have their voice heard. We build in a sense of community because clearly you can tell by now I'm a talker. So if a meeting's an hour, I can fill up the whole hour. So a part of what restorative justice has helped me to do and using restorative practices has helped me to figure out there, there's power in silence and listening, as much power as there is in speaking and talking. So in that way, I think sometimes a circle works because a part of what we also do is not just accountability internally with our team. We also do a lot of work with our community stakeholders. And if it's just us talking, we brought our community in to try to give us, you know, some perspective on what our next book should be. What should we be investing in? It can't just be our team talking. And why did we invite the community into the space? So talking circle has been very beneficial to us. I also think it's important sometimes flip the agenda. It's okay if I go last or not at all, because in most instances, by the time I get done talking, trust me, the hour is gone. But if I'm setting myself on the agenda last, in many instances, my team already covered what we needed to cover. But I always assumed that since I was the leader that I had to go first. What about putting me last at the agenda? And I can tell you nine times out of 10, all the issues that I wanted to talk about would resolve themselves. Because once again, you have the power. There's something magical about the power of human intellect. It's unstoppable. But can we use it and put heart, mind, and spirit together to be impactful? That's a different type of process. But if we can do that, oh, that's where the magic happens. That's where social change happens. That's where monumental movement building happens. But unfortunately, we tend not to run organizations like that. And we definitely tend not to engage in that way. I love how you've created a mindfulness around your own contribution, like making sure that when you show up, everyone is, feels heard, 
everyone has their place in the meeting. If you know that it's something that you're really passionate about and you might end up speaking on it for a full hour, you're like, I'm going to reserve myself and I'm just going to absorb what is happening in this space and give other people an opportunity to chime in. And I think that's so beautiful. I'm also curious because this is the Compassionate Marketing Podcast and I love the concept of compassion and the way that I define it is that it is empowered empathy. So I'm not putting myself in the room at the same level as the person who's in the trenches, right? I'm hovering above them with a 5,000 foot view with a deep care for their well-being at the core of all that I do. So I'm able to help them, but I'm not so in it with them that I'm bogged down by those feelings and emotions of their current experience, which makes all the difference. And so when you're in the room and you notice I'm sure that as a leader and a great leader, I can tell that you're noticing the contributions of each person in the room. Do you have sort of a corrective, compassionate stance when you feel like, you know, Sophie hasn't spoken up in the meetings in the past three weeks. I wonder if she's okay. And I wonder if she feels like there has been an opportunity or, you know, Hank hasn't spoken up. And I wonder if they feel like there hasn't been an opportunity or they just had nothing to contribute and like checking in because from a remote standpoint, and especially when calls are happening on Zoom, it's really difficult to keep your eye on all of that and also be focused on the subject matter. So how do you manage navigating that difficult kind of work? I think it's a both and because we tend to, of course, then meet in groups. We're using a lot of Zoom, but at the same time, the and pieces also offering individual attention. Now, all these things, everyone will say they don't have time for, and which as a small organization, it, it consumes a lot of time. But if we're talking about this compassionate piece and in the way that you've just characterized it, we know then that we have an obligation that we're not just talking about the job. Anybody can find a job, but to find a mission and a vocation is remarkably different. That's the calling. That's what sparks us up. And we can look at Gallup, for instance. Gallup and the Now Discover Your Strengths, the Strengths Finder Assessment, they found and they did survey all across the world, nation, and out of over a million people, what did they find as a commonality? Only 20% of people are showing up to work every day using their strengths. What a loss. Yeah. What a loss. So part of what I do, and I had a friend that showed me this, so I can't take credit for it. I tap in and I understand what people's strengths are from the onset of our relationship, as far as a working relationship and also a community relationship. It's a both and for me. So by tapping in and to understand each person's strengths, you can help to create space and place for those strengths to cultivate. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, the data shows us as well. It's not simply most organizations think they lost an employee because they didn't give them enough money. They lost an employee because they just didn't like working anymore, wanted to do something new. I was just coaching up a colleague before I joined you today. No, same circumstance for this employee. You lost the employee because the work didn't align, didn't have value. And the person didn't feel like they were seen or heard or part of the inclusion pieces, right? So when I think about this, yes, we have group meetings. Yes, we have the larger engagement with community stakeholders. Uh, but it's also equally powerful to give that individual attention that you're talking about. And that's a narrowly tailored approach. And in addition to learning more about folks' strengths and teaching them how to unveil this, I mean, this is the most difficult part of my job. And I'll, I'll just say it, it's what makes me get up the door and go, ah, 
because you, you help to inspire people into their greatness and then you're like we have to stay together forever that's not the reality though yeah because as you're cultivating them into their greatness they're expanding growing and it may not even be about mission and vocation there just might be a different season of life that they're called to do something else because i'm always like oh, hopefully so-and-so doesn't leave anytime soon we really need of course we really need them but the world needs them too hence why i think it's very important to have that both and there's a group work there's an individual and collective work and it just doesn't end with the relationship that we have in the workplace when i invest in a relationship with someone is for a lifelong commitment. And that's why a lot of people, they want a million friends or, you know, a hundred on Facebook or 2000. No, I want a core group. Give me two or three, yeah. <laughs> two or three that we can really invest in, work together and build the type of relationship that lasts beyond organizations, but to the calling and the mission. So this is a labor intensive work, but I think the greatest yield is, and especially since I do the work around coaching and leadership development, is that I'm helping to inspire and motivate leaders to take on new roles in new spaces. The more you exercise these skills, the better and more efficient you become at it. So you're an expert in cultivating leaders and being an inclusive leader. So the person, as much as you care for that person, that person is a conduit of the mission. So you can bring in anyone and kind of train them up, so to speak, to be the next evolution of what that leadership position looks like. So you're never at a loss, which is why the labor intensive piece is important to recognize in the beginning and also kind of compensate for as you build your skills as a leader to recognize, okay, why did it take me six months to get them to that position? How can I do it in four? The next person that I bring on board, I know that through the, my experience with this person, one of their biggest hangups that caused those delays was this characteristic. So now I'm going to use that as an employment filter to make sure that I'm not having someone come in with that weak spot because I know that my skills are going to lend themselves to someone without it much better. And this is how you become a more inclusive leader over time with anyone that you bring into the organization and a better, stronger leader and a bigger um, model of what that leadership looks like at work. And also what's so interesting is this, this sort of line I'm picturing, I visualize a lot of things as you're speaking for some reason, I'm picturing this line from compassionate leadership and having that at the foundation of all that you do drawn directly to compassionate marketing. I'm guessing you have a really phenomenal community. Am I right? We do. Yeah. And so when you lead with compassion, it infuses into your marketing because the whole team becomes a part of that mission and they're all excited to share it and bring it to life in the best possible way. And when the marketing is compassionate, that makes the sales really easy because people resonate with the message and they see that. And also you're building the loyalty of the employees. So even someone who might have thought they wanted to groom themselves into a leadership position and move on might choose to stay because they feel at home in that environment and you may get more benefit long-term and even their loyalty to the organization, if they leave, still exists because you created and facilitated that environment for them. So they'll still promote you and market on your behalf. And so that loyalty pays dividends in terms of the long-term gains of the company. So all of this to say, it starts by being an inclusive leader and having compassion for humans. And then from there, it builds 
to the compassionate marketing piece and compassionate leadership in terms of breeding loyalty among the people in the group, and then expanding that out and allowing it to radiate into a compassionate audience and community. And it feels like it becomes easier, just like the layers of growing a business become easier, the more you do it and the better you get at it. And as you figure out all those nuances and filters and different aspects of what you're doing to just become better over time. So what are your thoughts on all of that? My thoughts are, we have to continue this conversation. <laughs> this is exactly what it's about. Yeah. And the more people that we can reach, both with your message and mine, how radically can we transform the world? All of a sudden, work doesn't just become this thing that we do on Monday through Friday. And, you know, and looking at some of the data points, you have more heart attacks than on Monday as people are coming into work going, oh, my goodness, we're starting this again. But that work can be a part of mission and vocation in some tangible ways. And when we talk about community, really building that sense of a village, that we buy the products, the services, we engage with the things that touch our hearts and minds. So one of the initiatives that we've been talking about quite a bit this year amongst my team is that I recently wrote a book about Kwanzaa and we published a book about Kwanzaa from a young 10-year-old writer by the name of Zephaniah Martin. As like, oh, that's our youngest author this. that we've worked with so far. And his book, uh, Jaheem's First Kwanzaa. And I, I tell this because I'm like, every, every good leader has to have a sense of humor too about themselves. You know, that's a dose of humility. So we had both of our books released almost at the same time, same week, everything. I was like, but Zephaniah's book won all the awards. It was a dose of humility for me because I'm like, why book did getting bestseller thing type of awards? But Zephaniah's did. And why is that important? Because we were able to inspire a young 10-year-old author. And can you imagine that if I started writing at age 10 versus writing in my late 30s? Of what it said for trajectory of his lifetime to say you can do anything, that nothing is impossible. If you could write a book at 10 that's a bestseller, be impactful, the sky's the limit for you. So here it is. Here's our opportunity to really shine through, to use our gifts and talents in some tangible ways, draw other people together, and help to build a movement for justice and equity in real time. I love it. Thank you so much for all of your beautiful insight and inspiration. I feel like that was a call to arms. It's like, everyone get together. Here's your marching orders. Let's do it. So if people want to continue to learn from you, which I'm sure everyone is going to want to, and if they want to be in your circle of leadership and contribute their beautiful perspectives to your organization and maybe buy your book, The Inclusive Leader, and be exposed to the other books that you have to offer for themselves or people that they know. How can they find you? Where are you located? What's your website? All that good stuff. Of course, you have an open invitation to remain connected and, and to join this circle, the circle of social change. So here it is. Our website for access to bookstore, I work with a nonprofit. You can find it all on my webpage, which is my name, Artika Tyner. So A-R-T- I-K-A-T-Y-N-E-R.com. By making an investment in our bookstore, by purchasing your books, you're making an impact in real time. So click on that bookstore link, click on our bookshop page. All those proceeds are helping us to continue the work out in the community. But last but not least, I think it's important to be able to give you that invitation to join. So with that being said, please, 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 we will help to provide a bit of support from you as well. We are going to make sure that we give you a discount code and that discount code, if you go to the bookstore, is free shipping. That'll be the name of the code. We want to help the books get shipped directly to you so you can make an impact in what you're reading because we know something very important. Our mantra for our organization is 
leaders are readers. So we want to promote that opportunity for you to invest in your leadership and for you, yourself personally. Maybe you need a copy of The Inclusive Leader. Want to inspire a young person in your life? Get Justice Makes a Difference. Get that book that I talked about, about Kwanzaa, about Jaheem's first Kwanzaa. Whatever it is, find the books for you. We're taking an intergenerational approach of leadership development. Join us on this mission. Join us on planting those seeds and reaping a harvest of justice. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. That wraps up this week's episode. If you loved what you heard here, please take a moment and leave an honest review. And if you want to quickly identify and solve for what's blocking your success, go watch my free training, Uncap Your Income. In under 30 minutes, you will get the exact action items you need to hit your next big goal. Click the link in the show notes or visit growthmindsetmarketers.com to watch right now.